Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and Jerry's over there, who's the only well one of the three of us. Yeah. Which is crazy. Cray. Uh, you and I are both sick at the same time. Yeah, I'm getting over mine, and you're in... A th- Sounds like in the throes of yours. I am. Yes. In the phlegmy thickness of it. And this is stuff you should know. That's right. It is written in the sky. It is. <laughs> or in the stars. Uh, yeah. Well, no, you can't do that at night. No, but you could. They tried to make it so. Yeah. Glow in the dark. Yeah. You saw that too. Spoiler. <laughs> yeah. So we're talking about skywriting. That's right. Uh, and I was trying to think back, Chuck, if I have ever seen something written in the sky. I'm like, surely I have. You've never seen a skywriting message? I have, like, in, in I've seen p- pictures of them sure. or plenty. Like, you weren't like, what is this? I, I'm trying to remember back toward childhood, which is, you know, when I probably would have seen yeah. it. Uh, and I just can't quite place it, but I have a vague recollection. Um, and uh, nothing. It's me standing and there's grass. But then I'm like, look up, dummy, look up. What's in the sky? <laughs> I, I just walk off and eat a dandelion. <laughs> this was uh, this was actually my idea as an article. Like we're we're flooding the website with new material now, which is great. Yeah, man. And uh, I pitched this like five weeks ago, not even. Bam! And here, here it is. is. Whoop! Here it is. <laughs> I thought you knew. Uh, this is a good idea, Chuck. Thank you. I found this fascinating. Did you know much about it when you pitched it, or? Had you seen a sky written message recently? Um, I think I got the idea from uh, the great comedian Kurt Braunohler, um did a Kickstarter in May mm-hmm. to do uh, <laughs> a sky writing message. Uh-huh. And I think his quote was, I, it's so stupid and I love doing stupid things. And thank God the Internet loves stupid, too, yeah. because they funded it. And he let people vote on what to do. And they uh, chose, how do I land? <laughs> And he had that written above the skies of Los Angeles and got some attention for it. And it was a funny little gag. And Kurt's a great guy and a friend of the show. So um, that's where I got the idea because I started wondering, like, how in the world do they do that? Like, I've seen him before, but I thought, you know, when you're up there in the plane, it's got to be pretty tough yeah. to spell something out. To, like, m- massage the clouds over into a, to <laughs> no. beat them into letters, right? That's no. how they do it, correct? That's not how they do it. No, that isn't how they do it. They use a certain type of oil and some high-horsepower planes, and it takes a tremendous amount of skill, which is why it's not much of a uh, surprise um, that it finds its uh, its origins among World War One flying aces. Yeah. Apparently, the Royal Air Force, there's a guy named John Clifford Savage who um, I guess invented skywriting for military purposes. Yeah, and back then I think there were several things they did with it in the military. One was to give messages when you know you're out of like radio control because I think you can uh, you can see messages for like 2,800 square miles. Yeah, there's a little tricky math to it, but they say that on a clear day. Yeah, if you're standing on say the Great Plains or something. Okay. You could you can see a skywritten message yeah. for something like thirty miles, and if you take into account all those thirty miles right. and multiply them, it's what did you say like twenty eight hundred twenty eight hundred square miles. So that's a that's a lot of exposure. Yeah, and if you're in World War One, your walkie talkie back then might not have gone that far, so they would send messages, and apparently they would also use it to um, cloak ships. I guess fly around and just cloak them in 
uh, cloudy smoke. Yeah. Because, protection. because what you're doing when you're writing a, a sky message is basically, um, I guess you're, you're basically just flying parallel to the ground, right? Well, I mean, it's aerial acrobatics. You're, you're spelling with your plane. So, um, you're loop-de-looping, you're doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Yep. So after, uh, John Clifford Savage invented this, like within a couple of years after inventing skywriting, somebody's like, you know who would love this? Companies. And companies have money. That's right. So let's charge them money to advertise their stuff in the sky. And a dude named uh, Captain Cyril Turner was the first person, and I think 1922, to write a skywritten advertisement. Yeah, and I think he was, uh, I don't know if it was his original idea, but he seemed to be doing this as a proof of concept. Like, let me let me write Daily Mail, the British newspaper, let me write that in the air. Uh, and see how that works. And then later he went to the United States later that same year and said, hello, USA, over Times Square. <laughs> and then call Vanderbilt 7200, which is the hotel phone number where he was staying. And apparently the next two and a half hours he got uh, the switchboard lit up, literally. You can say that mm-hmm. because it was the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, they got 47,000 phone calls in just a couple of hours. And... Um, I think that was his way of saying, this is going to work. Yeah, exactly. This is advertising. And it got the attention of some people, some companies, pretty quickly. Um, Lucky Strikes very famously got into uh, skywriting for advertising. Yeah. Um, Sunoco. Uh, basically, anybody who was anybody with a company back then was doing skywriting because the other stuff you had was the side of a barn. Right. Maybe some radio advertising. Right. But skywriting for the amount of money it cost, you could get a lot of exposure in ways you, you just normally couldn't. And Pepsi was starting out at this time and they bought into to skywriting so enormously that the company and skywriting are kind of, um, they go hand in hand in a lot of people's minds. Yeah. In the 1930s, they started putting, they didn't have as much money to advertise on the radio. So, uh, from the 1950s, uh, I'm sorry, from the 30s to the 1950s, they like went all over the U.S., Cuba, Mexico, Venezuela, Canada. Just but that was their main form of advertising. Yeah. And uh, the New York Times at, at the time was they thought the skies were going to be littered, like polluted with right. with ads, and they called it celestial vandalism. <laughs> and uh, they predicted. Uh, Intricate pictures and colors and uh, glow in the dark, like we said. Yeah, but none of that really writing. came to fruition. <laughs> no, it didn't. Um, and I mean, there was pretty good reason to to kind of worry about this. Uh, in 1940 alone, Pepsi alone commissioned 2,000 skywriting projects. And um, for kind of more on the history of it, there's this good article called uh, "What Happened to Skywriting" that was in the Atlantic. That's worth yeah. reading too, by the way. But um, the thing that undid skywriting, the answer to that question, is television. Yeah, period. <clears throat> television advertising came in, and, and thanks to our friends at the Nielsen Company, you could uh, really kind of target and tailor your ad in ways that you couldn't before with radio. And it was for the amount of exposure you got. Yeah. It was definitely worthwhile to save your money for television advertising and, and sh- funnel away money from your skywriting <laughs> right. budget, you know? Well, it seems silly now, but it was like a legit form back then of advertising. Um, mm-hmm. And like it points out in this article, 
you have to have ideal conditions as well. It's got to be a clear sky, can't be cloudy, can't be rainy, um, can't be too windy. So there was a lot of things that, that radio and television offered, like it doesn't matter what the weather is like, right. basically. I mean, your reception's still going to suck, but well, that's true. People can still probably hear what you're trying to say. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. And actually, Pepsi, um, as I guess it's 50th anniversary or something like that, they uh, commissioned one of their their former skywriting pilots to uh, go find some plane, the type of plane that was used for skywriting. And this guy found like the plane, yeah, like, one of the main planes that Pepsi used for its skywriting campaigns. Because it was so deep into it, it maintained its own aerial fleet. Right. That's um, crazy. And this guy found it, and they started another skywriting campaign for another, like, 20-something years, I believe. Yeah, it started in the 70s with the Marry Me Sue commercial. Did you happen to watch that? No, I didn't get a chance to. Did you like Yeah. That? No, I mean, I remembered it when I saw it, which was from 1979. So that was the first startling thing <laughs> that happened to me today. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know how commercials back then are just so, like, ham-fisted. Like it's this cowboy at a barn trying to propose to sue his wife, of course. And she's, you know, you know, it's all acted out, but it's got music over it. So she's like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, just wait. And she sees the word Mary and she's like, hmm. And then she sees Mary me and she's like, what? And then she sees her name, Sue, and she's like, what? Yes, of course. And then they kiss and the barn catches fire. No, they're outside. Oh, okay. The barn. The barn. Oh, I thought you said bar. I'm a little stopped up. <laughs> gotcha. But uh it's great 70s commercial fun. I recommend watching it on the YouTube. It would have been great had the Wicked Witch of the West flown in and written Surrender Dorothy over Mary Me Sue. Because <laughs> that showed up. Remember, she sky wrote with her room. Really? Yeah. I don't remember that. Uh It was in... uh Wizard of Oz. I guess it was shortly after it was yeah. in Wizard of Oz, which was about the gold standard. Um, but it was, I think, shortly after she discovered her sister had been smushed by Dorothy and that Dorothy was in Oz. Uh-huh. And she jumps on her broom and flies up and writes, that surrender part. Dorothy with it in was, black smoke. Was she, like, farting that out? Probably. <laughs> She's squeezing flying monkeys. That, that broom exhaust that we all know about. So uh, let's talk about how to skywrite right after this. Chuck? Yes. Um, They say in this article, but probably they in general, that skywriting is a lost art. It takes a tremendous amount of skill, and it's been so underfunded over the last few decades that yeah. like there's literally a handful of people, maybe four or five. How many people fit into a hand? <laughs> well, it says in here four people. Mm. I found that hard to believe, but uh, the article also points out that it's a lost art because it's you can't learn it unless you learn from someone who does it. Right. And so few people do it these days. It's just a closely guarded secret. And back in the day, they wouldn't tell anyone because competition among pilots they would keep their little secrets to themselves. Right. So there's really, you can't get on the internet and learn how to skywrite. Yeah, there's not a handbook or anything like that. Um, and we should say we're talking skywriting. There's something separate called sky typing, uh, which more people are involved with. But yeah. for, for freehand skywriting, there's seriously possibly four to six people in the world that know how to do it. Yeah, well, these days, too, um, 
I looked at a couple of the skywriting websites. I think there's probably only two. Right. And it's it's skywriting and banner towing, which is the big yeah. thing now. Crop dusting. So you got skywriting.com and skywriting.net, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. And that's what you see more these days. If you want an ad or a marry me, Josh, you're gonna you're gonna attach it to a banner yeah. and pull it behind your plane. Yeah. Instead of that stupid smoke stunt. And actually, one of the uh, the people interviewed, one of the very few people who know how to freehand skywrite, which is kind of redundant. Skywriting is freehand. Sure. Um, she met her husband, who was a banner tower, and taught him how to skywrite. Yeah. She was a Pepsi smoke writer. Um, and uh, her, when she got a hold of her husband, he was just some backwards banner tower. <laughs> She's like, I'm going to teach you a skill, friend. He's like, but all you do is hook it up here and fly. Right. And she said, oh, my, just wait. Oh, you're talking about the, yeah. Yeah, he thought banner towing was like the difficult. You know, yeah, because he was crop dusting before that. Right. But Suzanne Asbury Oliver and uh, her husband, Steve Oliver, I believe, um, are two of, they're possibly half of the total number of people who know how to skywrite these days. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And they're married. It's all in the family. Yeah. The secrets in the family. So these planes are going about 150 miles an hour. It's pretty fast. And in order to, if you've ever seen a skywritten message, it's, it looks a little like a, a child has drawn it because they're writing it with a plane. And it's just very difficult to do. You're right. Um, in, in fact, the word Pepsi itself apparently takes 17 different maneuvers and I think like 14 smoke releases yeah. just to make those five letters. Yeah. That's pretty tricky. Right. Um, so, uh, even before that, though, you have to have perfect conditions, like you were saying. Yeah. The whole thing starts at about 10,000 feet up. Yeah. Because up there, it's cold enough. Sometimes it's humid enough um, that the the smoke will stay together. Right. So it'll last as long as like 20 minutes under ideal conditions. Yeah. Plus, it can't be cloudy. Yeah. Or else your stuff just kind of. Blends in with everything yeah, else. Marry yeah. me, blob. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> so you you have to have ideal conditions first, and then after that, you have to get in your little uh, air acrobatic plane. So they used to use, um, I think the Pepsi plane was a uh, Traveler, is what it was called. All right. That was the company that made it. Um, and it's now in the National Air and Space Museum by Dulles, which is well worth the visit. Oh yeah, yeah. There's a space shuttle there. There's a um, SR-71 Blackbird. Ooh, wow. There's a lot of really great stuff there, uh, and apparently there's the Pepsi plane too. But um, Suzanne Asbury Oliver says that she uses a chipmunk now. Yeah, which is a small, light, very highly maneuverable plane with a high horsepower. That's another key. Sure, because with high horsepower, you can generate a lot of heat. And you're going to have to generate a lot of heat up there because you need to burn off your oil. Yeah, it's a paraffin oil, um, liquid paraffin, basically. And it needs to, in order to reach that smoke point, needs to hit the engine at 1,500 degrees. And then it is just spit out through the exhaust. Yeah. And uh, I think the letters themselves, I always wonder from the ground, like how big they are. Uh, apparently, the letters are about a mile high. And once the smoke expands, about 75 feet wide. Right. Which is bigger than I thought. Yeah, I had no idea they were mile-high letters. Yeah, but and, at 10,000 feet, though, it makes sense. And Pepsi can be, the word Pepsi, it can be up to about five miles across. 
crazy. Yeah. And um, so when you're doing this, you have no frame of reference. Um, like you can't see what you're doing. As the the author of this article points out, um, Julia Layton says, it's basically like drawing a picture in the dark. Yeah. Um, so and if, backwards. And backwards. It's a very good point. Which I didn't understand why they had to do it that way. Because the way you're flying, the ground is below you. Yeah. But the people looking up at the message, yeah. the, the sky is above them. Oh, yeah, sure. I guess that makes sense. So when you're writing Pepsi like this, uh-huh. if you were beneath, it, it'd be backwards to you. Right. So since you're doing it for the benefit of the people on the ground, you, the skywriter, has to write the whole thing backwards. They probably learned that the hard way a couple of times. Yeah, I would guess so. <laughs> They're like, hello, USA backwards. What does that say? Yeah, apparently there was one guy I read in that Atlantic story in uh, New York in the early days that did such a bad job. He landed and went back up and put a drew a line through his message yeah. and started over. Yeah. I like that, though. Yeah, I mean, it's it like makes sense. I was wondering if there was a technique for like flying through your old letters or whatever to break them up and start over, but a line will do it, too. People oh, that's get a, that. I never thought about that. It's a good idea. But um, so... To to make these letters, you're using um, the ground. Any anything you can on the ground is like a frame of reference, like streets. Um, yeah. In some cities, are form a grid like pattern. So in an article I read, they basically said that's kind of like using lined paper. Yeah, yeah. Um, you also can use the shadow on the ground that's reflected by the clouds. All right. To kind of show yourself, like, oh, okay, that that letter looks good. I can move on to the next one. But you're also using timing. Sure. Too. So, like, for example, to make the upright in a F or a P or an L or something like that, yeah. you're going to hold your um, smoke trigger for, like, a 15 count or something like that. Right. And you'll know what that's going to look like. I mean, a lot of practice goes into this, too. For sure. Because yeah. that's just one streak. Right. When you have to go make the, the rest of the P or an R or something, that's very difficult. And Suzanne Asbury Oliver points out... Writing Chinese is extraordinarily difficult. Like in the sky? Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't sure what she meant by that. I think she meant in the sky. Really? Yeah. Man, I thought she was just equating it with writing Chinese on paper or something. I don't know. She's the best around. All right. So once you uh, have written this message, if it is on a good day and it's not super windy, you might get 20 minutes out of it, um, usually less than that. I've seen anywhere from like 8 to 10 before it starts to dissipate. And you can see it, you know, for a while too. Once it dissipates, but on a on a good day, what you're paying for is not a lot of time uh, exposure time. So that's why back in the day they used to do over things like Times Square or right. uh, sporting events. Of course, is where they do the banners now. Yeah. Same idea back then. Um, and like we said, Chuck, they use a paraffin based oil, and uh, they have a, a reservoir tank that usually holds something like 30 gallons, which yeah. is 114 liters for our friends outside of the U.S. and Liberia. And um, that's enough typically to to write about 12 letters. It's not much. No. So these messages are, are typically fairly short. Although there is one that's way more than 12 letters, and I couldn't find out, but it seems to me from what I've seen, mm-hmm. it's got to be the longest skywriting message ever, the one that John Lennon and Yoko Ono commissioned over yeah. Toronto. Uh, oh, was it over Toronto? Over Toronto. War is over if you want it. Happy Xmas. They saved a few bucks there. Yeah. Uh, from John and Yoko. Yep. Um, the only thing I can figure is they might have had a couple of planes at work. Maybe. Because that's way more than 12 letters. Yeah. I mean, if the thing sticks around for 20 minutes, it could be, yeah, I would guess they'd have to use more than one. 
And then uh, over Austin in March of this year, that had to be for South by Southwest. Sure. Uh, the first several hundred digits of pi. <laughs> so they must have had a couple of planes over that, too. Pie in the sky. Um, it's going to cost you some money. Uh, in the article, it says 5000 but I saw the other website, maybe they're undercutting, uh-huh. um, said that they started about 1500 bucks for the most basic message. Uh, which is just an I. I guess so. <laughs> and it goes up from there. <clears throat> um, I know Kurt Brownell raised, um, like I said, about 6800 bucks. Uh, That's not bad for a, a lengthy message like that. Yeah. How and, do I land? Yeah, and the Kickstarter. Apparently the founder of Kickstarter heard about it and was in town and like delayed his trip an extra day because uh, Kurt had a big party on a rooftop. Nice. And um, he stayed and went to the party just to, I guess, say, like, this is what my company has become. <laughs> <laughs> or I had something to do with this, too. Yeah, probably so. Um, and if you're worried about what is being used for smoke, like we said, it's paraffin oil. Um, and it's actually non-toxic, biodegradable, the good stuff. And if you're like, hey, skywriting is polluting, but I'm cool with air shows, well, I have an eye-opener for you, pal. They use the same <laughs> stuff at air shows. That's right. And if you are a pilot, like a, let's say you're a crop duster and you've got a little de Havilland chipmunk, and you want to get into this because it seems like a good time to be getting into skywriting. Um, it's also the worst time to be getting into skywriting, but um, it'll cost you anywhere from three to six grand to outfit your plane to be able to do this. Which I mean, you can make that back in a couple of messages, maybe one. Yeah, that's not bad. Yeah, if John Lennon uh, hires you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's gonna happen anytime soon. No, but Yoko still could. She's still around and kicking. That's true. We saw her in New York. In person? Yeah. No way. Way. What, just like walking? No, at, at a restaurant. We Holy at, cow. Yeah. That's a big one. It was a huge one. Yeah. Very neat. Or if you're shy of LaBeouf. LaBeouf. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know that guy? Uh-huh. That jerk? <laughs> He's not famous anymore. His bag says so. He uh, he did that, uh, you know, he was in the, had that plagiarism scandal earlier this year. I didn't know what that was about. He did some, uh, I think a... I'm not sure exactly what he did, but he supposedly plagiarized Daniel Close, a graphic novel, like pretty heavily, and he was just killed for, for it. For what? Did he have a graphic novel? No, I think he did a, maybe it was a play or something. Huh. I can't remember exactly, but he was called out, and nobody likes that guy anyway, so people are ready to pounce on him anyway. So he did, he spent 25 grand to hire skywriters, one that said, I'm sorry, Daniel Close, or Klaus, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Uh-huh. And then another one that said, stop creating. <laughs> because if you're a creator, they're going to come after you, I guess. I love both. 25 grand. Um, and I believe those were uh, digital skywriting, which is... Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're going to get into that right after this. So digital skywriting, the wave of the future. <laughs> yeah, the wave of the future... That originally originated in the 1940s. Yeah, I was really surprised to see that. So remember how we said there's like sky writing, which is freehand. There's also sky typing, which is basically like dot matrix printing, but in the sky. Yeah. And in the 40s, a guy named Andy Stennis, whose family is still uh, involved in sky typing. They, they run a um, one of the bigger sky typing com- companies, as you can imagine. Um, he invented this process where you would use multiple planes. Yeah. 
and they basically just fly across a patch of sky. Straight. Yep. yep. In formation. Uh-huh. So kind of like, you remember that chalk holder that you, oh, you yeah. would make like five, like the, the uh, music stripes with? Yeah, you know yeah. What they're called music stripes. Yeah, I think they used it to, um, when you were first learning cursive. Yeah. Like lined paper. Or if you got in trouble, and you had to write something all over the ch- chalkboard. Yeah. You could just use that thing and knock out like five at once. I totally forgot about those. This is like that, but with planes. And in the 40s, Andy Stinnis was like, I'm just going to put five planes in, in the service together. We'll fly in formation mm-hmm. uh, in one direction. We'll all go back and fly above that in the opposite direction and then above that back in the original direction. And then um, you print out basically a message that way. So you're building it from the bottom up or the top down. Yeah. Going from side to side, just like a, a dot matrix. Like exactly like that. Yeah. Uh, the thing is though, is it's not, um, it's gonna look neater than your hand drawn one. It's not gonna look like a five year old drew it. Well, especially since in the sixties they introduced computer programs that control it too. Well, exactly. And it's, um, it's little puffs of smoke, uh, like the dot matrix. So, uh, the computer controls it. The pilot just flies the plane. It's got the message all loaded into the little program. Yeah. And it knows when to, to burp out those little puffs of smoke, um, five at a time, and then back and forth and back and forth until you've got, you know, whatever your silly message is, Shia LaBeouf. Right. So if you're Stop making, creating. if you're making a mile high, um, message and the five planes are flying in like a half a mile wide formation, mm-hmm. then they're gonna, one pass is, they're gonna make the bottom half of like pie. Yeah. Or stop creating or something. Then the next pass will be the top half of it from one side to the other. And then you got a perfect, very, very nice, like you said, very clean yeah. sky-typed message. Yeah, and you can still see the the dots. I mean, it puffs out, but it never quite connects like a, a sky-written message. Yeah. Um, and I guess that, now that I think about it, if you pay twenty five grand, that's five planes at five grand a piece, right? Which is the minimum price. So I guess that makes sense. Yeah, that's that's. One of the main reasons sky typing is so much more expensive, you can get way more letters out of it. Like when they did pie in the sky in Austin, they did, um, a, I think a couple hundred of the, of the places. Wow. After the decimal. Like, that's a tremendous sky type message. Who, I wonder who paid for that. I'm sure it was like, uh, Google or somebody, huh? Probably. They got deep pockets. But that's one of the reasons why it's so expensive, because you have to hire five or more planes. Like, it's a minimum of five planes. Yeah. You might need more than that. Yeah, and um, I think, uh, who wrote this one? Uh, Julia Layton. Julia Layton says that the digital skywriting requires less piloting finesse. I guess that's a one way of saying it, because you're not doing loop-de-loops. But if you're flying five at a time in formation... right. That's some piloting finesse. So. That is, it is piloting finesse, but they're not like, they're not in, doing, like you say, a loop-de-loop to make the, the top part of a R. Yeah. You know? Like they're just basically flying in formation and then some computer is measuring exactly like their altitude and their distance in relation to the ground and spitting out a puff of smoke to form these letters. Like they're not doing any of the writing. Yeah, but it's still. Oh, it's better than I can do. I'll give you that. <laughs> um, yeah, and there, there's predictions that uh, skywriting is making a big comeback. Um, so much so, and I found this interesting. Microsoft, did you see this, where they got a virtual skywriting patent? No. This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Oh, they got a patent where you can send in a picture of a blue sky and tell them the, mess, tell them the message you want, and they will insert a fake skywriting message. 
into your photo and you can show people like, hey, I got a photo of a skywriting message that's not real. That's cheating. That's going to ruin the industry. Uh, maybe, but um, apparently the patent, the picture that they used to get the patent awarded was of a real skywritten message that was actually copywritten. So <laughs> they, uh, I think it still went through even though they had infringed on a uh-huh. copyright to get the patent. And I don't think they've done anything with it yet. There's not an app yet. But, um, no, I would know about it if there were. Look out for it in the future, my friend. You might be able to fake Yumi out. Yeah. And say, look at this photo. And she's like, well, that's weird. Why Usually people just walk you outside <laughs> right. and show you the thing. I would say, no time for that. <laughs> just look at the photo. We're, we're a busy couple. Yeah. Um, and they're actually, it does sound like there is something of a future for skywriting thanks to social media because there's the, the, um, novelty of a skywritten message, like a real one, not the Microsoft fake out yeah, one. Yeah, like how do I land? And you've got things like Instagram and Twitter. Uh, so people are like, oh, check this out, what somebody did over the sky of Austin. And all of a sudden, something that was visible to everybody at South by Southwest is visible to the entire world. Well, that's how Kurt Brownellers blew up. It was on Reddit. And like weeks after he had done it, he got a little bit of press, yeah. and then it popped up on Reddit weeks later, and he got a whole new round of uh, press and did interviews about it, and uh, it became a nice little comic stunt for, for old Kurt. Now he has a car. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you got anything else? I have nothing else, sir. Okay, well, if you want to know more about skywriting, this article commissioned by Chuck, you can type skywriting, one word, into the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com, and it will bring it up. Since I said search bar, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this another uh, vulture vomit revisiting oh that's the gift that keeps on giving yeah we did a a podcast a while ago on vultures and how their defense is to vomit on you and uh it happened to this guy which is kind of neat uh hey everyone i'm a bit of an uh, amateur spelunker a few summers ago i made the precarious climb up a cliff to explore a cave overlooking a river i had a friend with me as you always should for such adventures but the narrow ledge only allowed for one of us at a time to get uh, to the mouth of the cave so i went first I got in to the cave, and the droppings in foul stench let me know that it was a vulture nest. But nobody seemed to be home, so I uh, ventured a little deeper and found, to my surprise, a nest of hissing, angry little vulturelings. Oh, but those are adorable. I bet they are. Uh, they were as aggressive as they were fuzzy, and the biggest one tried to challenge me and chase me away, which I thought was really cute. That's the big brother. <laughs> Until I heard a thump behind me and a much louder hiss. I turned around to see that Mama had returned, and her bulk blocked almost the entire entrance of the small cave. I decided to make a fake rush and yell to scare her away, and when I did, she reared her head back and projectile vomited, hitting me in the side of the face. Oh, man. I have to tell you guys, no other chemical deterrent in nature compares to vulture vomit. I was shocked for a moment, and when I caught the whiff of the disgusting mess running down my neck and into my shirt... I basically went mildly insane. (laughs) I pushed past the vulture, leapt from the cave, and slid down a tree growing next to the cliff, tore off my shirt, and jumped into the river in a mad dash to get away from that smell. Uh, Despite a good washing in the river, I still stank, and I had to ride home in the bed of the truck. That, my friends, is why you should never scare a vulture. And that is from James Ashford in Springfield, Mizzou. Nice. Thanks a lot, James. It's funny how vulture vomit will focus the mind. Yeah. I bet it's, um, have you ever been skunked 
or been super close to something that's been skunked? Uh, like I've driven on the highway through a skunk no, spray. Not no, the same. I've never been anywhere near it now. Yeah. It, uh, our dog Lucy got skunked when we lived in L.A. And I woke up. I might have told this before. I woke up in the middle of the night. And this was during uh, it was post 9-11. I thought that someone had set off a dirty bomb. <laughs> it, it was unlike. It doesn't smell like it does on the road. It smelled like the harshest, oh, yeah. most bitter, like acrid chemical it I was just in the air, and I was tasting it in my mouth, and I was like, we've been attacked, we've been attacked. I, I Yeah, because there's something almost like vaguely pleasant about like oh, skunk yeah. smell far away. Oh, yeah, I love it. But that I can see smell. how it would just like make you lose your mind. And it is not the same thing close and up. And, uh, did it like, burn your skin or anything? No, it didn't. It, it was really gross, though. I mean, she smelled for, uh, we gave her the tomato juice bath, which is supposed to help. Did it work? I mean, it, it sort of masked it a little bit, but it, it basically just has to wear off over the course of days and days and days. Yeah. Yeah, it was really rancid. Did you, like, shave her fur or anything like no, that? No, I thought about it. It was so gross. That is very gross. Yeah. I didn't know there were skunks in L.A. That might be the fact of this podcast. Oh, they're all over the place. Huh. Skunks, coyotes, and, mount, mountain lions. And smelly dogs. This is a wild place. Tomato sauce dogs. Yep. Uh, if you want to tell us a story that has to do with one of our old episodes, we love hearing about that, especially if it brings up a counter story by Chuck. You can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We have an Instagram page. We have a Pinterest page. We got it all, everybody. And the whole thing comes together at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 